Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Android Central Podcast. It is Friday, April 6, 2018. My name is Daniel Bader, and I'm joined by two different people than last week. So happy to welcome back Alex Doby. How are you? Good to be here again. I was I was kind of thrown when you said different people. I was expecting some kind of elaborate compliment for both both myself and, and Jerry. Yeah, I usually do do that. I'm not uh, I'm not we, feeling we are, in the complimentary mood today. We're just different people. Uh oh. You're just well, that is a compliment. I mean, really, you are different. <laughs> it's a backhanded people. compliment, is what it but is. We're pretty damn different, Alex. Come on, I mean, you are, that you that's. Know. That uh, lovely and and uh, eloquent. But voice. you can't do it. You can't do it now. Come on, lost well, all credibility. No, he, he's talking about me. <laughs> I'm talking you, about you. Oh, is, fine. Uh, yeah. Jerry Hildenbrand. Yes. So the I backhand am. compliment just got turned into like a like a straight on insult for you, Alex. <laughs> I, um, sorry about that, uh, Jerry Hildenbrand. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm all right. Um, it's. It's a Friday, so I'm, I'm excited. Actually, I was up late last night. I installed a bunch of these Nanoleaf Aurora um, art light things, yeah. and I, I, I was geeking out on them all day, trying to figure out how they work. I, I have this new rhythm input thing, which responds to music. So my whole room, my, my whole office is now, uh, right now, as I'm talking, it's responding to the sound of my voice. It's actually really neat. Um, Nanoleaf is... If if you don't know a Toronto company, they make really cool smart lights and smart electronics and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's why I'm I'm a little tired today. That's that's but that's a good reason for it. Um, so we're we're gonna jump into a whole bunch of phone stuff. It's a very busy week uh, from a phone from phones that we have in hand and phones that we're waiting for in the next couple of weeks. And we're gonna talk a little bit about some Galaxy S nine. Battery issues, not quite the same as the Note 7, but that we need to talk about them nonetheless. And obviously, there are some continuing concerns with Facebook and privacy. Lots of new, um, lo- lots of news this week, lots of new revelations out of Mount Zuckerberg. Ah. And, um, and then some, I think, some very cool stuff from Cloudflare. Uh, Jerry, I want to get your, your thoughts on the new consumer dns service that uh, they launched actually on april fools which is super weird so that's going to be our show but i do want to start with a, a short acknowledgement of the shooting in um in, in california this past week at the youtube headquarters and um you know it we were all online when that happened i'm sure everybody was was following it live as these things happen to you know to go these days lots of lots of i would say confusion in the early minutes and hours afterwards i was shocked i think everybody was i'm hoping that the thousands of people at youtube who work in that in that building are are able to um you know that they're they're dealing with this okay and that they have each other and that the resources are available for them to to get over this. Thankfully, nobody died except for the shooter herself. But I guess I, I just want to speak for everybody uh, to say that we at Mobile Nations and Android Central are thinking about everybody at Google and at YouTube. So, um, yeah, that's basically what it comes down to. So, sorry to start the show on a somber note, but I wanted to, to just to say that, and uh, and then we can pick it up from there. So. 
Um, Alex, you haven't been on the show for a while. You've been traveling. And as a result, we haven't really got to hear your podcast thoughts on a couple of very interesting phones that were launched in, um, in Paris at the end of March. So the Huawei P20 and P20 Pro, or Huawei, are really interesting. But the P20 Pro, I think, is the more interesting of the two. Tell us about this phone, what Huawei's doing to promote it, and really just how it stacks up to the Galaxy S9 and everything else on the market right now. Yeah, so the P-series has always been, for them, about sort of design first, about a more fashionable uh, design, whereas the Mate series you would have, uh, the really high-end hardware would be in that line of phones first. Uh, And actually, what we're seeing with the P20, especially the P20 Pro, is actually, um, it's more or less a straight-up successor to uh, the Mate 10 Pro in a lot of ways. It takes everything that was great about that in terms of the power and the giant battery and it kind of amps up the design a little bit. You have some crazy new um, gradiented design uh, backs for this thing. And you have uh, a wild new camera system that is quite complicated, but also has a ton of promise. Um, and I think it's... So Huawei's been in this sort of TikTok cycle now every six months. And it's always weird when you see companies hitting this sort of cadence with with their phones. Um, and it does sort of raise questions as to what is the future of the, the P line versus the mate line um is it still is one just going to supersede the other and we're just going to continue doing that maybe that's workable maybe it isn't um but yeah i think i i appreciate the fact that huawei's been able to essentially not make the p20 pro any worse at anything compared to the mate 10 (laughs) pro it's more of like a, a straight up successor this time which i'm absolutely fine with and it's been fun getting to grips with this over the past uh week or so since it uh it launched in paris um the three main things for me uh the design obviously is huge there are a di- bunch of different colors you can get the blue is pretty nice uh there's also black because black is just the your, your standard phone color these days um the one i've been using is the uh twilight reflective finish which is really really nice mm. uh unlike any sort of reflective uh glass finish on any other phone so that's really good you have the cameras which we'll talk about more in a little bit uh, but there's a lot of really unique stuff they're doing there as well, and a lot of stuff they're doing in low light, which in particular beats the Google Pixel, which was the low light king before. Uh, and also, just there's a, a lot in the new EMUI 8.1. They don't often do point releases of EMUI, but they they have this time. They're also up to Android 8.1, and there are a lot of really sort of small things that stack up just to make it more usable and more polished and just... The bugs that you saw maybe in, in EMUI 8 just, you know, have been taken care of now, which which just isn't anything you can really put on the back of the box or that you'll see in an ad, but it, it is a big part of what makes this phone more enjoyable to use. Let's talk about those cameras. That's what most people will, you know, no pun intended, focus on when they review it. I'm sure you're spending the bulk of your time on your review on the cameras, my review script is basically just a uh, <laughs> like two thirds <laughs> camera at this point. It's crazy. There's so much to say about them. Yeah, I mean the the hardware else uh, other than the camera is pretty much as you it's said. A, what you it's get a Mate 10 Pro. Yeah, yeah. But um, with what I find really interesting is that well, with a notch. But what I find really interesting is that the Mate 10 Pro right now, you know, months after its debut, still feels quite. You know, it's basically the hardware of a brand new phone that would be announced in mid 2018 in the sense that 
the Kira 970 sort of outclasses even the Snapdragon 845 in some ways. It's extremely efficient. It's very fast. And it seems like it took the Mate 10 Pro as an, a sort of a pilot project for uh, what we saw in terms of AI uh, AI features or using that dedicated NPU inside the Kira 970 for it to eventually make sense on the P20 and P20 Pro. Does that does that sound right to you? A little bit. So one uh, one part of it is, like you said, um, you had your first generation of Huawei AI features last year with the Mate 10 Pro, and they've just had an extra six months to build out some more features. So that's what you see now. The other side of it is you have, you're on Android 8.1 now, so you have access to uh, Android's neural networking APIs as well, which is super important because uh, in the old phone that was on 8.0, you would only be able to hook into the power of that chip through Huawei's APIs. Now that's open to um, just general Android apps through uh, Google's neural network APIs as well. You don't see a ton of apps using that just yet, but that will change over the next uh, year or so. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that, is, uh, that is a huge part of it still. I, I, I see something here that I love. Uh I don't I don't make a you know excuses or, or shy away from the fact that I hate these no bezel phones. I just hate them because I don't hold them very well. But this, I don't want to say that it's thicker, but the 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 sides, the way it wraps around and it's rounded on both sides, it looks like it's easier to hold, is it? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I never had much trouble holding the Mate 10 Pro. Uh, I actually don't have one within uh, arm's reach to, to compare right now. Uh, I want to say it's perhaps a little less slippery than the Mate 10 Pro and, and possibly, Jerry, for the reasons that, that you mentioned. Um, you also have more of a uniform bezel going around the outside, which is is, is possibly going to help with uh, one-hand ability as well. So you have... Um, it's not as, as sort of uniform as the iPhone 10 is. There's, there's still a little bit yeah. more bezel around the top than there is on the sides. Um, but it's not one of these ones that, that tries to be bezel-less and you have very, very slim bezels on the side and you make up for it with, with a forehead and a chin. Um, so, yeah, it is... Uh, I mean, it, there's also a very different finish to to the sides compared to the Mate 10 Pro as well, which perhaps is uh, you know, goes towards the, the in-hand feel as well. Also, the back is... Uh, you do have curved sides to it and curved corners, yeah. but it, it doesn't have that sort of arch the way the Mate 10 Pro does. So it, it is a little bit of a different end-hand feel. I think for me personally, maybe a little easier to hold on to. Um, but you also got to remember the the aspect ratio of the screen is also different. The size of the screen is also different. Um, so I want to say it feels maybe a little smaller in the hand or maybe just a little easier to hold on to. Uh, it's just the, the sort of nature of the chassis and, and the angles and everything and the, even the shape is a little bit different to, right. to the older it phone. It looks like there's a, a little bit more meat. I've got big, meaty hands, and if I hold a Galaxy S9 or S9 Plus, they just wrap around and touch the screen. And it drives me crazy, even though Samsung has done a good job of rejecting those touches. And in my mind, I picture ways it could be fixed. And what I thought of is what I'm seeing here with a, a, a more pronounced edge. And yeah, we can talk about AI and all this cool stuff, but... Back to basics, this looks like it fixes a problem for me, and I can't be alone. There's other people out there with big, thick hands. So that's great. Everybody pay attention to this if you make phones. Is this the best phone, the, the nicest phone, the, the biggest leap between generations that 
Huawei has made in recent memory, Alex? I think so, yeah. And it used to be that, um, I think Andrew actually said something a lot like this on the podcast last week. They they were really good with the execution of kind of by-the-numbers, standard, boring, metal-back designs. And they were like that for a long time. And okay, last year they moved away from that a little bit. They had a really unique sort of uh, etched surface. Um I'm not sure how you describe it, but it had a it had a very uh, distinctive texture to the metal that was almost carved into it, and that was that was a little bit unique. And you had uh, some unique colors last year, like blues and greens. Um, but this time around, they've done something really unique, and actually, it's it's been a challenge. I think as, as more manufacturers have gone to glass phones, if when everything is glass, how do you make it unique? Well, it's about the color behind it. It's about how you blend that metal and glass together, because inevitably you have metal in there as well. Um, yeah, I think it's easily one of the better looking Android phones right now, especially from from the sides and from the back. Um, and certainly, it's it, it's a very different look from the Mate 10 Pro. But you go back a year to the P10, and yeah, there's almost uh, you know, unless you want to look at maybe the the fingerprint scanner or other small design features or the you know the accent on the power button, everything else pretty much has changed from year to year. Um, and that's that's not a bad thing. It's got beautiful symmetry too. Exactly, I, yeah. I, it, I thought it well, looked ri- ridiculous until I saw a picture of you holding it in landscape. The, the camera arrangement, I thought that was just crazy. And then I saw a picture of you holding it like you would hold a camera, and it makes perfect sense. It looks great. Yeah, and that's when you see someone holding that and you can yep. read the branding. You see the, the Huawei branding and the Leica branding, it's right there in your face. Uh, so it works not only aesthetically, but as as a way to promote the brand, which is quite smart. In light of what's happening with Huawei and uh, the U.S. government, it's not surprising that the phone wasn't announced for the U.S., but a lot of our colleagues, a lot of Huawei fans, a lot of just newcomers to the Huawei brand who happened upon your video and a lot of other videos of the P20 Pro, they're wondering why this won't come to the U.S. Is it just the current political situation or is it something more than that? So a few things there. I think... Um, yeah, to be honest, the political situation is is a big factor. Also, I think they had banked, even before this became known, I think they had banked on the Mate 10 Pro being the device for the US. And that's what they built all their carrier relationships around. So there was probably no, there was probably nothing in the works to ever bring this phone to the US. Um, the question now is, now that we know that the, the whole Mate 10 thing has gone up in flames with the exception of direct tra- sales through Huawei and through Amazon, um, yeah, first of all, where do they take the U.S. business from here? When you, when it seems you actively have the the government of the country working against you, um, you know, is it time to pack up shop? They they've said they're not giving up on the U.S. market, so fair enough. Um, you know, I I don't know. I would I would think maybe if they are going to push ahead with the Mate 10, that that device has only just launched in the U.S. I think it would be quite unlikely to bring out something anytime soon that directly competes with that you would probably think maybe hold off it would be maybe a mate 20 later in the year that uh that sort of supersedes that or maybe you'd want to look at something in the the honor range that maybe has one or two of these features to um to bring that in as as well um i don't think you know it, it for the immediate future i don't think the fact that this phone isn't coming to the u.s has anything to do with the political situation i don't think there were any plans to bring it there anytime soon the, the p series has never really been in the u.s at all uh for the past couple of generations it's all been about the mate series over there anyway so uh certainly doesn't help but i don't think it's a direct result of that and i, I want to say something real quick because a lot of people get this wrong and, and argue about it it's not our current political leaders that have started this 
uh, Huawei, ZTE have been under some type of investigation in the last administration as well. So you, you can blame a lot of things on our current crop of politicians, but this is not one of them. Yeah, it's it's fair enough to say um, the AT and T Verizon, and you know the the announcement or lack thereof, I think put this made made this a mainstream. Yeah, uh, story. I, I mean the the thing. So what makes it different? I mean, let, let's not sort of rehash an old story too much. But what what makes it different is um, Huawei and ZTE had sold phones in the US before on carriers, you know, it wasn't the difference right. this time is it was a flagship, it was a ton of money, it was supposed to be, it was supposed to mark the big entrance of this brand into the US. Um, and as much as yeah, Huawei and, and ZTE were under investigation, and there were various reports put out under under the previous uh, administration. The difference is now, it, you know, not only do you have the new administration, which has a lot more sort of protectionist tendencies and uh, suspicion of China in general, um, you also have this converging with this big Chinese brand wanting to make a splash into the U.S. and presumably from there build presence in, uh, you know, perhaps infrastructure as well. Jerry, uh, just to sort of further the talk of the current administration, um, you know, I don't want, I never want this podcast to be uh, political, but the reality is that there are now um, 150 billion dollars worth of tariffs on Chinese goods yeah. entering the United States and vice versa. How will that affect, if at all, the prices of devices? Will it affect the components that pe- that companies outside of China use to put devices together and manufacture them? Um, bottom line, how will this affect American goods? Uh, maybe not at all. It's assembled in China is not the same thing as originating from China. And you can bet that these companies are very, very smart at making the right paper trail and supply chain to save them as much money as possible. I'm pretty sure that most of the parts are going to be originating from Malaysia or Singapore or Taiwan. And, you know, we recognize Taiwan is not part of China, so it it doesn't have those tariffs. Uh, Whereas... Things like the the metal exterior that's probably manufactured in China, so we're paying an extra fifteen percent on that. But that's probably only a dollar part. I, I can see the the difference being very very slight in most cases, and companies just ignoring it and and eating a very tiny loss, so they don't have to raise a price. On the other hand, if they can't fix the paper trail, so the device as assembled doesn't originate from China. Hey, prices are going up 15%, period, across the board. Uh, because that's that's where all these phones are made. You know, they there there are a few phones made in Vietnam and Malaysia. Yes, I know. Don't don't email me. But the bulk of the phones that we buy are are assembled in China. And that means made in China. And under the spirit of the law, our administration wants extra tariffs placed on those. So the, it's actually interesting to look at the Android side of things there, and um, certainly there would be something in place that means that an, you know an iPhone perhaps would would be able to get around that through some wizardry. But um, uh, yeah, Samsung phones, if I remember correctly, are, uh, are manufactured in Vietnam. LG phones are manufactured in Korea. Um, Google's phones are manufactured in Taiwan and Korea. Um, so on the Android side, you're potentially not looking at a, a huge upset. Um, until you start getting down to, you know, ZT, Huawei, um, people like that. 
Oh, that's that's actually a really good point. Some of the bigger companies right. uh, that we you know talk about in that that sell in the U.S. don't actually have a lot to do with um, you know mainland China. So no, that's a good point. Um, I'm actually looking forward to something that you're writing this week, Jerry. If you want to give us a, a quick <laughs> tease about this, um, just about phones and and crypto mining. I'm so interested in this. I had to replace my gaming PC because. Lightning hit my house and my search protector did not do its job. So my insurance company gave me some money. So I went shopping and the amount of money they gave me for my old computer, I I thought that was sufficient based on what I paid for it. And then I went to buy parts for a new one and I just was really, really pissed and looked into it and saw why the parts are so expensive and it's crypto mining. Uh, Big groups of people are buying computer parts in bulk, thousands of units at a time to mine, you know, I'll say Bitcoin so you understand, but it's not necessarily Bitcoin. It's other cryptocurrency. And it has driven the the, the price of graphics cards and RAM sky high. Well, we have GPUs and RAM inside our phones, and I'm looking into how it affects that. And if it changes the price If it does, who's eating the cost, what's going to happen, and what the future looks like. Because they're a lot of money now, and I don't want to see them get any more expensive. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see about uh, what Jerry has to say about that. But really interesting stuff. You know, as as GPUs and phones and and mobile devices in general get more powerful, we're definitely going to see them being used for more of these kinds of mining purposes, especially since they're so low power. Uh, the amount of electricity that some of these my, um, crypto mining companies use and is some staggering. Of, some of the new cryptocurrencies don't need performance. They use storage. Well, mm. your 128 gigabyte iPhone that you don't use anymore would be great for that. You know, you put a bunch of them on a tray somewhere and use them. And it's just ridiculous. It's insane. But it's interesting. So switching gears a little bit, last week we talked about education, Chromebooks, Apple, um, and Microsoft and the other companies involved in that very, very lucrative and growing technology in the classroom market. I asked people to email us about their experiences if they had, if they were in education, teachers, um, principals, people in the industry or parents. And I was amazed. And I want to thank everybody for, for getting in touch. We got about a dozen emails really detailed explaining the way that various teachers and, and use technology in the classroom or parents, how they, how their kids interact with Chrome, Chromebooks, um, and, and to some extent iPads. And I just want to read a couple of, um, of, of excerpts here uh, from, a couple of people, and uh, this one is from a a parent. Uh, his name is Eric, and Eric, thank you for sending this in. Um, he says, "I'm not an educator, but being a technology guy, I've taken an interest in my son in my son's school district. Uh, is in the Texas area. Uh, they use iPads with enormous cases in with handles, obviously, so they can you know they won't get cracked and broken so easily." from grades kindergarten to grade two. And then they switched to Chromebooks in grade three. And uh, he says he doesn't actually think that the um, uh, the 
Acer Chromebook tab, the one that was announced a couple of weeks ago, is ready. It's not really made for the classroom yet. Chrome isn't classroom um, optimized in a tablet form. Um, however, Apple still, even with this announcement, doesn't have anything that's suitable for kids when they start writing documents and doing web research in like grade three. And I think that's really the the takeaway is that even with and I'm 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 talking now, not the the not Eric. Um, that's the the bulk of the opinions that I got from people that the iPad is great, especially with the pencil for younger kids, for kids that are doing more creative type learning and their curriculums are not so focused on assignments. And then once they switch over to those assignment based curriculums, or curricula, I think it's it's interesting that. Chromebooks are, are, are much preferred. Let me read another one here. I got an email from somebody named Daniel, great name, who tells me that um, teachers need to establish policies about technology use in their classrooms. Students need to be taught how technology is supposed to be used and how to use it responsibly. Just because a kid has access to a smartphone doesn't mean they know how to use it properly, especially if parents at, er- at an early age are just giving kids a phone and saying, here, use this, watch Netflix, do whatever you want. They learn that it's okay to be on their phone without actually doing anything productive on it from a very young age. And uh, Daniel says, my students have grown up with Chrome OS and I still have to show them how to use Google Drive as well as G Suite. I can't imagine what it must be like for a school switching over to iOS. Um, te- technology needs to be taught, practiced, assessed and then retaught. I think that's a fantastic point. Um, you know, it's not just about teachers having access to great backend technology and the, uh, you know, ways of, of administering computers on mass, but it needs, these technologies need to be really accessible. And even though iOS itself is quite easy to use, um, there is a lot of overhead that goes into teaching a, th- a class of 30 kids how to use a new product. And if you start kids with an iPad, that's some. That's one thing, but transitioning school boards on mass from Chrome to iPads, I think, is is going to be a very tall order. I want to read one more. This is from uh, a, a guy named Mike, and this is really interesting. So Mike writes, "I'm a 23 year veteran teacher of social studies and French in a small rural New York school district. At first, we used iPad twos and had two carts in our junior senior high school." Uh, high building and a couple in the elementary building. Having these iPads at first was great because if you couldn't get into the computer labs, you had the iPad option. However, the more we used the iPads in class, the more of a pain it became because of permission to download apps and the fact that there was no keyboard, a uh, hardware keyboard. The district then decided to push the iPads to the M- elementary building. And since then, we've been using one-to-one, so every student with Dell Chromebooks for the past two years, and this year, students were able to take them home. The transition over the last three years, first with Google Classroom and G Suite from Microsoft Office, was huge. So they moved from Office to G Suite, and has been. And, and as an Apple fanboy, it's been a little bit depressing. And I call myself asking, where is Apple? At this point, I feel Apple has lost the race. I would not use an Apple device at school because students know how the Chromebooks function. They're low cost for the district. They have a keyboard and do everything we need them to do. In fact, in the classroom, I am a hundred percent paperless. It's so, you know, that's something as well. The fact that Mm -hmm. they teachers are now able to 
use and distribute far less paper because of all of these um, all of these uh, upgrades to Chrome and the fact that now most Chromebooks have pen input, I think is fantastic. So Jerry, you've read all of these emails. Um, what's your takeaway here? They compare pretty much identically with uh, the way my local school board does it too, with uh, iPads for younger kids because younger kids don't necessarily need the keyboard. And the the iPad is easier to use if you don't know how to use anything. But then when it comes time to be productive, the people I talk to locally, it's Google's backend stuff, the way Docs integrates directly into a Chromebook versus how you use Google Docs on the iPad that makes the Chromebook the winner. Uh, not not so much the lack of a keyboard because you can you can buy decent keyboards for iPads, and of course they're not making the buying decisions, so it's not about money to 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 the teachers I know, and it all makes sense. It, the The emails all have a same undertone, the same common theme that iPads are great, but Chromebooks give more of the ugly stuff. They make it easier. Administration, getting the kids all on the same page so they know how to use them. Uh, the the stuff in the back end that makes them easier to use and makes it so it can be the same for every student, no matter which Chromebook they have in their hands at the time. That's where Google has nailed it. And that's where Apple is lacking. And Apple is really far behind on the service end. I mean, we're, we're looking a lot at the um, the iOS versus versus Chrome OS sort of dichotomy here, um, and actually, it, it, looking at the bigger picture, it's interesting to see kind of Microsoft as the bigger loser in this situation because yeah, the whole the whole idea behind Microsoft's focus on education in I guess the late '90s and, and early 2000s was that if you get kids, uh, for want of a better phrase, hooked on Windows and hooked on Office from from the age that they're growing up, then that's what they know how to use. That's invariably what they'll use at uh, at a later age, going to college, going into work, or whatever. Um, Apple probably doesn't really need to know, doesn't need to worry about that because Apple devices will always have this cool factor associated with them. So you'll still want to buy an iPad because it's an iPad. You'll still want to buy a MacBook because it's a MacBook. Uh, Chrome obviously doesn't have that. Microsoft doesn't have that. So if as you're learning to do web research and do more writing and use a keyboard and stuff, if Chrome is what's helping you do that, then even though a Chromebook might not be cool, Google doesn't necessarily lose out because um, they have the benefit of that's just what kids are using. So maybe um, as people growing up now, uh, in 10 years time, they obviously have the experience of using an iPad. Anyone can use an iPad, but... Um, the thing that they associate with work, the thing that kind of replaces that sort of Microsoft Office plus Windows area is a Chromebook. And, you know, Apple will do just fine in that world regardless. Microsoft, maybe not so much. I, I, I've, I'm also working on something about this for next week. <laughs> Daniel, you know, if you want to give a sneak peek again. And I've talked to a couple people that are involved in it. Uh, Microsoft is still in the game, but when it comes to the hard sciences and advanced stuff in high schools, uh, MATLAB, that, that kind of thing. Uh, there are plenty of Microsoft computers in schools still, but office is just about dead and it's the price. And, and one other email that I received, uh, from somebody named Adam, he made a really good point. 
Microsoft is actually doing a great job pushing Windows 10 into schools and making it cheaper for companies or for for districts to buy Windows laptops as well. You know, Windows on ARM makes mm-hmm. uh, brings down the cost of of Windows 10 products too, but it's not going to be enough for people to get onto Windows services like Office because you can still use Chrome as your distribution point. So you can still use the Chrome browser. You can still have access to a lot of those same services that you would on a Chromebook. Um, and in many ways, Google doesn't care as long as you're still using a Chrome product or a Google product. So I, I think the takeaway here is that even regardless of the um, of the of the soft uh, of the hardware, Google is still winning. It has a sixty percent market share in terms of actual hardware in U.S. schools, but I'm guessing that even kids using iPads and Windows laptops are running, to some extent, Google products on them. And that's just a huge coup for Google. And we hear a lot of, you know, talk, comparisons of Google's Office suite, Google Docs, you know, their spreadsheet stuff that they have compared to Microsoft Office. And Office, yes, it's much more robust. It is a little more complicated, but it does so much more and it's great. And for an enterprise company that that has millions of dollars to spend, it's the perfect piece of software. But for your school district that doesn't want to spend millions of dollars so kids can write a report, Google has that nailed and Google doesn't want your money. They, they want your time and your eyes. Lots of really interesting stuff. I'm actually going to be putting together a special edition podcast over the next couple of weeks bringing some of these voices from various um, parts of the education ecosystem, uh, both for and against Chrome. I'm going to be getting, I'm going to be talking to somebody who also uses um, iOS and and iPads in their classroom to counter some of the arguments that Chrome is better for everybody. And hopefully we'll, we'll come to, you know, a better understanding of what it's like being a teacher, what it's like being a student in 2018, because I don't think we have nearly enough context when we talk about this. And it would be enormously helpful for me to learn more. So I'm really looking forward to to putting that together. Um, I'm looking forward to listening because yes, we we don't know. And this is important. So we're going to take a quick break uh, and we're going to thank our first sponsor. And that is Thrifter this week. And Thrifter is the place you go for all of the best deals, whether it's tech home, smart home. Well, that's tech, but sort of tech. It's everything. If you want to save money on Soylent, you can go to thrifter.com and get that as well. Um, So like we do every week, we go to Thrifter and we pick a single deal that we like. I'm going to put Alex on on the hot seat today. What is your pick? So my pick is something for making delicious uh, treats, and it is George Foreman Grill and Panini Press down <laughs> to $19.99, uh, $12 off. So um, yeah, use it to make a bunch of stuff, grill grill the fat out of your food, make delicious sandwiches, less than 20 bucks. What are you waiting for? That is a, a pretty good product, actually. I, I will yeah, test we, that. We, when we I was have single one here in, and- in a dorm room, I, I use that basically every day. Same. You, even I can use it. So, and I haven't burned the house down yet. Good man. Um, and and adjacent to that product, Alex, there's a, a Mickey Mouse <laughs> mini <laughs> waffle maker. 
that's also just fifteen dollars. So awesome. get get both of them and uh, eat eat breakfast for dinner every day. You can um, cook bacon on one and waffles on the other. <laughs> exactly, it'll be delicious. There you go, Jerry. What's your pick? The Ecobee Three. I Ooh. love my Nest. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great product, and Nest has done a wonderful job making your heating and cooling system smarter. But the Ecobee 3 allows for remote sensing of temperature in other rooms. My house has a basement. I'm sitting in it. My thermostat is upstairs. Uh, It's not good in the summertime. It's hot down here, and it's cold upstairs. And to get it cold down here, I have to turn the AC way down and close the vents upstairs. And it would all be solved with a second temperature input. And the Ecobee has one, and you can save 25 bucks if you buy one. And that's that's pretty awesome. That is a good one. I just have to correct you somewhat. There is a feature uh, on Nest thermostats now where you can buy a separate sensor and put them in rooms. Uh, it, not the mine. The difference is that they're not yours, but there's, right. um, <laughs> they're, they're super expensive. They're like 50, 60 bucks each. Yeah, but my, so, I, I don't have the newest Nest, so I have to buy something new. So I'm looking at this Ecobee 3. Well, that's okay. So my pick is, as I mentioned earlier, and I was, I was kind of excited to see it here, uh, the Nanoleaf Aurora Rhythm Smarter Kit. So that is, as I described, it's, it's a bunch of, it's a set of um, 12, or sorry, nine LED panels shaped in a... Um, a triangle and you fit them together using connectors. And then once you plug it in, they become this light installation. You can make it in, you can, there are infinite possibilities really on how you can um, connect them, what shape you can make. And it's incredible. It looks great. And it supports Google assistant and Alexa, which is awesome. Sorry. Um, and I, I love it. And you can also buy an expansion pack with three more panels for just 60 bucks. So the starter kit is $50 off right now at Home Depot. It's $180. And I really recommend it. It's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. And um, you can actually, you know, you can get it from uh, Amazon as well, but it's a little bit more expensive. But uh, it's $180 at Home Depot right now. And all of these deals can be found at thrifter.com. And as always, we thank them for their sponsorship. Okay, Alex, let's talk Galaxy S9 battery life. Uh, Last week, there were a couple of things that happened with the Exynos version. That's the one that's sold outside of the US. What is going on with the Galaxy S9? So the Galaxy S9 in general um, has not been getting stellar reviews in terms of its battery life, and th- this applies even to the Exynos version, uh, even to the uh, Snapdragon 845 version that's sold in uh, in the US and China. Um, but in particular, the Exynos version has, by various reports, not been uh, performing particularly well in terms of longevity. And what kind of kicked this off was a review from Anantec, about a week ago, which highlighted issues with the way um, frequency was uh, scaling up in single core performance mode in this chip. Um, so that when you had, for example, a game that was using a lot of uh, single threaded stuff, that uh, means you you fire one of the high performance cores up really high, 
uh, well, the frequency is just really high in general. And to be able to get to that frequency, you burn a lot of power. And that seems to be uh, a, a characteristic that is particular to that chip and uh, the, you know, the physical sides of the cores on the die. Um, as well as just a com- as uh, the way that Samsung has implemented its scaling and its voltage stuff in the kernel. So it's a combination of the nature of the chip, just the physical chip itself, and uh, what Samsung is doing in its firmware to scale up performance to meet the demands of what the chip is doing. And Jerry, I hope I wasn't too completely no, wrong there. You you just absolutely said a huge long post I wrote for tomorrow. It says <laughs> that that's it. It's I, I go it, Jerry. Into, it's done. No, I, I go into a little bit of the reasons why it was done and that it's this is not a mistake. It's you're a beta tester, a nine hundred and fifty euro beta tester. I'm sorry. So if we're the beta testers, what is the finished product? Uh, the finished product, it, Samsung adds a special CPU governor on top of what's come standard in the kernel. And if you remove that, which if you go to a non-tech and read the follow-up, they rebuilt the kernel and remove that. And the battery life and performance is comparable or actually a little better in most areas than the Snapdragon version. And that's with no extra work from Samsung. But the the meat of the matter is Samsung is trying to build something that compares to Apple's A-series. Because okay, somebody so has to... Let me interrupt you, Jerry. What is a CPU governor? A lot of people have heard okay. that term before, but may not understand it. Your, your CPU, the faster it runs, it, the CPU has several cores. Uh, it could have two, it could have four, it could have eight. Whatever, the, the CPU in your phone or your laptop, it has more than one core. Each core can run independently in frequency. That's the megahertz. You see, uh, you know, 2.4 megahertz. That's 2,400 cycles each second. That number's not fixed. It can go down, but its ceiling is what's listed there. The lower it, speed it runs, the less battery it uses, but the higher speed it runs, the more calculations it can perform in a second. So when you're doing something that needs a lot of CPU power, it pushes a lot of voltage and speeds the cores up on the CPU, which drains the battery faster. Samsung built a new Exynos that has physically bigger cores that are built to run faster and hotter because somebody needs to build an ARM chip that gets gigantic single core performance. Uh, Apple builds one, but they're not going to resell that chip to anybody. The future is ARM. Microsoft has proved the future is ARM. It's ARM is scalable. ARM is cheap. Uh, Intel is even working on ARM chips. So Samsung wants to be there and be ready to sell those. Samsung is more than a phone company. Samsung builds some amazing ARM CPUs. Uh, This had to be done. Samsung has to build one and it has to go out to users and we shouldn't have expected it to be perfect. Uh, The good news is that this is software that's what killing your battery. The bad news is Samsung's not just going to strip it out and let it run without, you know, using any of the fancy stuff they put in the CPU. So you're not just going to get an update tomorrow that makes it like the Snapdragon you're going to get an update sometime after Samsung is confident it will be better, and we're going to hope that it fixes it. That's just the facts. That's how it's got to be. 
one of the really interesting takeaways from Anantech's review was not just that battery life suffered as a result of higher voltages associated with higher clock speeds um, when the chip was in single or dual core mode. There are four high performance cores. There's eight cores altogether with this M3 or with this um, Exynos 9810. Like the Snapdragon 845, it's divided into a cluster of four high performance and then four lower or mid-range performance cores. Um, The way that those high performance cores work is that you have to scale down the speed of each one the more cores are activated. So when you only have a single core activated, you can go up to 2.9 gigahertz, but Samsung limits it to 2.7. When it's at two, when two cores are activated, it can be at 2.5, I believe, then 2.3 for four core for three cores, and then 1.7 or so for four cores. Anyway, when the, when many of the synthetic benchmarks were done, even though the chip is faster and it was tuned to be faster than um, it would be when they when uh, the subsequent kernel changes were made. Basically, think about the chip shipping in the phone as being in turbo mode all of the time. It's yep. faster than it needs to be. But the performance of the actual, the results of the actual benchmarks were lower than the equivalent on a Snapdragon 845. Now, why, why was that? Because the software didn't know what to do with all of this extra speed. So a lot of these Android apps are not actually tuned to take advantage of this extra performance. It's not, it's not even able to take in all that turbo energy. It's just being wasted. And that's, I think, the biggest takeaway here is that Samsung shipped a phone that is using a chip that is, that is too fast for the software that it's running on. Right. And it's, it's always going to be that way. Uh, when you write an Android app, you write an app that'll work on lots of devices. Uh, I, I always go back to Apple, and I'm sorry, but Apple, you write a, an app that will work on the latest iPhone with the latest A-series CPU, and when that app is built, when you compile it, it's built to take advantage. It'll go across multi-cores better. It will be able to let's say it running two threads each in a separate core it will run them at the same clock speed it's it it helps it it does something that we can't do on android because your app has to run on a processor that's two years old or maybe even an intel processor we don't have that you know uniformity and that's kind of sucks for samsung but I still feel that this is a a great test for them because their own software is going to be able to see those cores and they're going to be able to get feedback on how the, the CPU itself is performing compared to what their vision was when they designed it. And where where better to test it than than a Galaxy phone? So that means we should we anticipate seeing this cpu in say a tablet or chromebook or something in the near future i i really think so i this is the perfect cpu for a chromebook uh you know maybe the next version i i'm sure there are some hardware changes they would like to make you know that that's something that they'll they'll see once there's millions of them in use you know as compared to the 10 that they tested in the lab but you know, maybe the next version or the version after, but this idea is perfect for a Chromebook. Uh, 
Apple's A11 is better than the Intel in the 13-inch MacBook Pro. It is. It's just synthetic benchmarks are, are no way uh indicator of how something works while you're using it. But in this case, we're just counting how many numbers it can crunch each second. And Samsung has done a great job here. They they have done a great job. It's just stinks for you that the battery life on your phone isn't what you want or need. And I get that. It sucks. And Samsung needs to address that. And actually, the weird thing is not that, that just uh, battery life is... I wouldn't say bad. I would say maybe substandard compared to what you would expect for a phone releasing this year as opposed to last year. It's the fact that in a lot of tests and even in artificial benchmark tests, there is a regression, especially in the S8 S8 Plus to S9 Plus. Mm -hmm. Um, But you you upgrade from 2017's phone to 2018 and you have demonstrably, you know, (laughs) by the numbers, demonstrably worse (laughs) battery life with the newer phone. Uh, And that seems crazy. And that seems, I mean, surely that is something that's, you know, if a big enough stink is created around it, that Samsung has to address in some kind of update in future. I'm, I am sure that Samsung is working to address this right now. It didn't. It didn't need to be a big stink, just a little stink, because this is the feedback they need, and this is the feedback they're looking for. And Samsung is really good at this. Really good at this. It, it, it will get fixed. I'm confident. I've been using an S9, not the the larger one. I've been using the the Snapdragon version for the last week or so. I'm very impressed, not just with battery life. I, I haven't it hasn't been amazing, but it's it's certainly fine. It's it's good, but everything else about the phone has been very impressive. And um we've said this so many times, but it feels like an S7, right? It feels like <laughs> a, a a mature version of the of the beta from last year. And um, I think Samsung did a great job, not to mention the fact that now that all of the S8 Note 8 lines have been updated to Oreo, they feel like new phones almost. Alex, I think you would you would probably agree with me. The upgrade isn't monu- momentous in terms of features, but in terms of um, performance, I think it, it definitely makes a, a big improvement. Yeah, um, and just uh, yeah, Samsung kind of dragged its feet with uh, the the speed at which they're able to to update the Note in particular. The Note, uh, their most expensive phone of last year, was kind of uh, playing second second fiddle to the uh, the S8. But once you get that update on there, it is kind of telling. And, and when you have the two phones side by side, you have uh, the Note 8 with the older Exynos chip, the S9 with the newer Exynos chip, same amount of RAM, basically the same firmware. Uh, and you you really can't tell the difference in terms of day to day performance um, in, in in any respect really. So um, yeah, there's that's the silver lining there, I guess. Um. So what else other other than this you know the slight you know hiccup with the Exynos chip, uh, Jerry? Is this the best? like chip that you could find on an Android phone? How does it compare to the Kirin 970, for instance? I, I, I like the Kirin 970 because it is built around a neural processor. That's, that's going to be a big deal in mobile. And Huawei got in front of that. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Samsung is looking into that as well. With Bixby, they would like to have their own, you know, internal and external neural networking set up and, that they can hook into Google APIs is just icing on the cake. 
So I know that's coming from Samsung, but right now I favor the Kirin. Uh, both are overpowered for a phone. They will both do more than you will be able to handle on a, on a handheld device. Uh, that'll change in the future, of course. But as, as far as power and efficiency, both are able. But Kirin gets the edge because it's a little bit more future-proof. Okay, so we're going to take a quick second break, and we're going to thank our next sponsor, and that is GameStash. GameStash is the place to go for deals because you would no wait I'm I'm wrong no I'm just joking uh, it is the uh, it's the place you go for actually a great deal a great deal on Android gaming you spend five dollars a month and you get th- hundreds of premium Android games for a single subscription it's five dollars and you get the first month free and you get to play games like Tengami Tengami is one of my favorite chill puzzle games of the last five years it is beautiful it is challenging it is very smart and it's fun and it's free with the GameStash subscription GameStash adds new games every week and they added a bunch of them over the last few weeks we haven't we didn't uh, do a, a GameStash ad last week um but with since the end of March GameStash has added one two three four five six great games they used to be either premium games that are now available as a part of the GameStash subscription, or if they were free games, they no longer have any ads or in-app purchases. So great. Um, games like Puck, Siberia 2, Monument Builders, Gods vs. Humans, Alice in Wonderland, and uh, the aforementioned Tengami. Awesome games available as part of your GameStash subscription. Go to GameStash.com slash ACPod to sign up and you get a month free, try it out. You do not have to pay anything if you don't like it, if you cancel within your first 30 days. So go for it, try it out. You'll really like it, I promise. That's gamestash.com slash ACPod. Daniel? Jerry? I hate to put you on the spot here. Uh, I had somebody ask me how they would go about getting their game on GameStash. And I directed them to the person that I thought they needed to go to that I knew would help them. But what should a developer do if they have a great game and they want to include it? So send me an email, podcast at androidcentral.com, and I will get them in touch with the right person. I don't have the, that information right now, but uh, I, will, I will have that for you shortly. Um, that, that's what I wanted you to say. Perfect. I, I love working with you, Daniel. You're on point all the time. I have to be. It's live. We're doing <laughs> it live, Jerry. Um, Okay, let's talk a little bit about Cloudflare. Cloudflare is a company that Mobile Nations uses to store cached versions of the the live sites. It it prevents uh, denial of service attacks. It does a whole bunch of stuff. It's a pretty great company. Um, Cloudflare launched a consumer DNS service over the weekend. And uh, Jerry, tell us a little bit about why 1.1.1.1 is awesome. Other than the number, because uh, that's the best IP address well, on the internet. Yeah, it's it's Taylor. It's not just mobile nations that uses Cloudflare. If you look into it, I'll bet most of the websites you visit are, are Cloudflare clients. I guess is the right word. And the DNS is, I'll use the word tuned. It's faster to connect to uh, a service that that they know is using Cloudflare. 
it also it it, it blocks threats. I, I don't want to say just malware because the internet is more than malware. It's misdirection and all sorts of trickery. And they're looking for this and they, they just don't send you there. If you use Google DNS, even if you don't use Chrome, you might have seen something that Google tells you this isn't a safe page. Cloudflare does the same thing. They look for the same sorts of threats that Google does, but they also have a database of other things that they look for that just they don't think are kosher and they keep you safe from it. Of course, they'll let you go through if if you're like me and want to click buttons anyway, but they they try to make the internet a safer place and they found a way to do it faster. So Google has its own consumer DNS, 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4. That's been around for years. Obviously, mm-hmm. Google is a company that, you know, we will trust with our domain resolution. It's not, you know, it's 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 better than the alternative, right? The right. DNS with your ISP comes with a lot of baggage because they can track the websites you visit and as of last year they can then sell those ISPs can then sell that anonymized data to third parties and that's that's crappy. That's not that's not great. And if you have Comcast, they can actually intercept the small inoffensive ads you see and inject horrible, crappy ads from companies I hate on the website I work at. And Comcast, I hate you. So they can do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But is Cloudflare's DNS better than Google's or is it it pretty much the same product? It's the same idea. Uh, Cloudflare does, they, they have a... A, a client base and probably most of those clients are also Google clients in some way or another. But uh, Cloudflare has an easy way to know if a website is safe and online and can connect at a good speed because it's one of their clients. That That saves a little tiny bit of time for each little hop and each little hop adds up when you're using the internet. So, I think Cloudflare has a little bit of edge here because they serve so many of the big popular web pages. So yeah, I, I changed my um, router's DNS over to Cloudflare. It seems to be fine. Doesn't seem much faster, but it works. Well, so, and the, go. the good thing is, is you shouldn't notice that it's faster or slower. It should feel the same and good. Mm-hmm. That's it's 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 important that they're 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 filtering out malware and crap on the internet without degrading the speed. That's the important part. But Jerry, you know what's really interesting, actually? Um, Google Wi-Fi uses its own DNS by default. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know why that surprised me. I feel like it shouldn't surprise me, but it did because it's something that I felt like it would be an opt-in, you know? It would yeah. use your ISP's DNS by default, and then you'd be able to, it would give you a prompt or something that would say, hey, by the way, we have our own, it's faster, it's more secure, do you want to switch to it? But instead, when you install a Google Wi-Fi, it will automatically switch to Google's DNS. I, I'm pretty sure, though, once it, it finds your ISP on, on your phone, you do get a pop-up that says, do you want to use the recommended settings? So they're they're covering their butt, but but I agree with you. For most people, it's fine. You know, just 
if you trust Google, you trust Google. But I'm right there with you. I like to know what's going on. And yeah, they should have said something before, especially since it's their own product. So in a, a similar kind of vein, especially given everything that's been going on with Facebook in uh, recent weeks, what is the financial incentive, whether you're talking about Google DNS or Cloudflare, what is in it for them monetarily to run this free service for anyone that can just do DNS looker for free? Well, they, they're getting user data. They, they, they can track you and see where is, you go. Is that any better than your ISP in that case? Well, you, if you look at their privacy policies and you assume that they're going to abide by them, yes, it's much better. Google has a much better privacy policy than your ISP does. Uh, Cloudflare, I haven't looked at theirs in depth, but the last time I looked, they had a decent privacy policy as well. Your ISP's privacy policy is I will sell anything about you and there's nothing you can do about it. Here's your bill. So I will I will push back on that because unless they're lying, Cloudflare says on the announcement blog, uh, we we don't build our business around tracking users or selling ads. We don't see personal data as an asset. We see it as a toxic asset. While we do some logging to prevent abuse and debug issues, we couldn't imagine any situation where we need that information longer than 24 hours. And while we want, and we wanted to put our money where our mouth was, so we com committed to retaining KPMG, which admittedly has some uh, some questionable history with these kinds of audits, um, to audit our practices annually and publish a public report confirming what we're doing, what we said. Um, my guess is it's a value add for existing customers. Sure. It puts Cloudflare um, into the minds of consumers, where it's traditionally been an enterprise or IT manager type of uh, decision. And it just sounds like it, this is like, from what I know about the, the CEO of Cloudflare, who famously kicked off um, <laughs> right wing or alt right folks, um, like hosts off its, uh, its, its yeah. network. Um, I think it was the, did it, did it kick Breitbart off or something? Anyway, I, I forget which website it was, but the CEO famously came out and said, yeah, I believe in free speech, except when it comes to hate speech. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't say I disagree with him, but he was very vocal about that. And as a CEO, he put himself in front of a lot of criticism, especially First Amendment defenders that, you know, they may not agree with the content being hosted on those websites, but those people should be allowed to buy any service that they want, in, in their opinion. And this guy said, absolutely not. We disagree with that. Um it also is in their best interest to have a better DNS uh, system in general, because ISPs are horrible when it comes to DNS. Not only are they do they just leak like a sieve, but they are slow. <laughs> yep. Right. And the more well, because you they're know, being the, indexed. Sure. As you exactly. use them, they're they're gathering all that data for each and every time you use it. Right. So I feel like the more people Cloudflare can get using its consumer DNS, the faster DNS for for its corporate customers will be in general. And that will just make it more efficient to run an enterprise DNS in general. So Right. I, I thought we were talking about why Google would want to host DNS. Cloudflare is doing oh, it because okay. this makes their other service that they sell much more valuable because you'll be more exposed to your customers and your website will be faster and better. Was uh, neo Nazis, by the way, that uh, Cloudflare kicked out? So and and yeah, always that a was good a, thing to be kicking out. 
I, I, yes. I, I, you know what? I'm stuck on that. I, I absolutely hate that. If, if I saw somebody marching with a Nazi flag, I would, I would, I'd be able to walk so I could beat the hell out of them. But <laughs> you could they, fly, Jerry. You could fly. They, I, I might be mad enough to fly. That's, I mean, that, that, that's very personal to me. That's a bunch of stuff I don't want to get into. But those people have a First Amendment right as well. I am glad I am not the CEO of anything other than my couch. Amen. Um, speaking of CEOs and spending some time on probably um, shrinks couches in the near future, <laughs> uh, Mark Zuckerberg has been embroiled in, in a lot more controversy in the week since we did our, our last podcast. Alex, the company admitted that up to 87 million Facebook users' data was shared with Cambridge Analytica, up from the uh, previous 50 million that, uh, that, that broke a couple of weeks ago. And since then, Facebook released a, an update to its terms and conditions, as well as a list of nine things that it would undertake to um, restrict user data. And one of them had to do with its Android app and its Facebook Messenger service, where they would no longer store call and text history for longer than a year. And they would they they reiterated that they never stored the actual contents of the conversations. But they now are saying that they will delete all call logs older than a year. And in the future, the client will only upload to our servers the information needed to offer the feature, not broader data such as the time of calls. Um, is this enough? Are, are you... And will other people be placated by these changes, do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's Facebook obviously is just in full-on crisis management mode now between the media appearances with Zuckerberg last week and um, the, the sort of token gestures that have been made over it in the, the, the days following that. Um, and yeah, the, the emissions recently that actually with the way that system worked, that people could harvest, uh, phone numbers and other information quite easily. And that actually they had been doing that <laughs> over recent years. Um, yeah, kind of scary. Uh, I, I think we need to wait a little bit until this, this whole situation has died down until we actually know, um, okay, what is the, what is going to be the new, what, what is the new normal going forward? What is the acceptable thing to do so that, People can have all these features that they want in Facebook, but um, without the potential for bad actors to hook in there and, and just siphon data out. As we're seeing all these temporary protections come in, that's a question that hasn't yet been answered. I would say there's a great model for that out there right now with Google. Google takes as much data from you as Facebook does, probably more, but they lock it up tight and you don't hear... You hear about stupid things that Google does, like resolving IP addresses of routers and building a database on routers that have public Wi-Fi. That's dumb. I mean, they did it to get more data, but they should have known when somebody caught them doing it, it would look like they were snooping. But as far as an actual big data leak or Google giving access to your data you know, to somebody on a paid basis... We've never heard of anything like that. So if Google can do it, Facebook can do it. And it gets back to, I mean, I think you guys discussed this last week, so maybe we're just retreading the same old ground here. But, uh, you know, Facebook's response in terms of it's trying to cover itself 
from uh, allegations of the way that users gave consent for that information to be used. Yes. Is just, is not good. If you've ever used any Facebook app on Android, there is no way that Facebook could reasonably expect the average user to give informed consent for that information to be um, sent back to, to their HQ. And not not only that, but in order for you to, in order for them to be able to act as an SMS client and get access to that information, uh, you need to hit the big blue button. You need to not hit the one that is uh, purposefully like mid <laughs> mid to light gray yep. on a white background, and for them to hide behind this idea that you gave them consent to do that when they were, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure whether it's dark patterns, but it's getting pretty damn close. For it's just it's just insane for them to say that. That that was uh, that was informed consent. It's it's in no way is that true, uh, and I'm sure they know that. I, I put that on the same little table off to the side as people like me running around for the last five years. Don't use Facebook, and now they say I told you so. That doesn't help. That's stupid. Stop. Uh, Facebook, you 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 snatched people's data by tricking them. Stop trying to get out of it and fix it instead. And they're trying. I mean. They're yeah, doing a lot. I, they're they're restricting access to their APIs. They broke Tinder. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, you know, I, you they know, broke they broke a lot of APIs. They uh, API access. They it's it's a broken <laughs> company. It's it's like this company has so much work to do that it's it's basically insurmountable. Well, but it's great so, that it happened to them because we know the type of people that Facebook hires, and a lot of you listeners know Facebook hires really, really smart people that have crazy ideas. Mm. And that's what you need to fix something like this. But then that's the, this is up. the danger of having those people yes, as well. absolutely. That's the only way to fix this, and maybe they'll come up with something that works. Uh, as Alex pointed out, it may be worse because crazy ideas are crazy. So uh, does, does Zuckerberg need to go? Like how... How how far are we from that? It seemed. I well, mean, from, from what he he gave, I think quite a poor media appearance. Um, I don't know. It, it's uh, thoughts. Is he? You know, CEO I, I don't of think Dry he's Tubs, going to whatever. go. I, I th- no. Um, should he go? I no. I don't think so. Um, you know, he's still so much. Like the the whole idea of Facebook is is still so much a a Zuckerberg, um, like it's a Zuckerberg production almost. Uh, I think the biggest thing that we could do is to stop using those products, um, and and that's basically how we can we can win. You know, we have to blame Zuckerberg because he's responsible for the company. But to think he knew exactly how this was happening is, is insane. He He's too busy walking barefoot on the beach and talking to people over million-dollar lunches and other things that we imagine super-rich CEOs of huge companies do. He probably spends some time sitting at a desk writing code, but he is making sure ideas that one department came up with are implemented by other departments and has people that overlook this kind of thing. And he's not hands-on responsible for this. Uh, We can get mad and say that in the end he's responsible, but he's not the person that we should impose any type of punishment on for doing it. But the the reason he earns those big bucks is because ultimately the buck is supposed to stop him as CEO. 
Right. He's, I mean, he has the final responsibility, but it seems like everybody thinks that he did this. Well, he didn't do this. The people he hired did. And I think that's a distinction that needs to be made, even though he's still responsible. That's a fair point. I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I guess so. I mean, he, but he, it seems like he has so much hands on, um, decision making within the company. I can make it easy for you, Daniel. Are you responsible for the things I say? Yes, I, absolutely. Uh, but, but, but should you be punished for the things I say, or should I be punished for the things I say? Well, I, I think it's it's not as simple as that, right? There's a corporate responsibility. Right. It's not as simple, exactly. That's what I'm getting at. We're but also we're singling I'm not, him out. I'm not a I'm not a majority shareholder of of a whatever well, Facebook's worth, a four hundred billion dollar company. So it's not about like mobile. I mean, the distinction here is that Mobile Nations is a private corporation. Facebook is public, right? It's it it has a responsibility to its shareholders, and the board of directors is supposed to oversee the managers to make sure that they're not um, either breaking the law, which is we're not even sure that Facebook didn't right. do, <laughs> or that they're that they're acting unethically. And we know that Facebook acted unethically multiple multiple times. I mean, um, uh, what, what what's her name? Um, Cheryl um, Sandberg. Sam, yeah, Cheryl Sandberg admitted that they knew about Cambridge Analytica in 2015. They just overlooked it because they didn't think that it was as large a breach, or they didn't consider it to be a breach at all at mm-hmm. the time. Um, it's it's like if you if if I know that there's a water leak coming into my house and I don't do anything about it, my house isn't going to fall over tomorrow. But I can, you know, I'm still responsible for knowing that the leak is there. And sure. if I don't patch it today, that's going to affect me when that r- wood is rotten. And that is going to be it's much gr- harder to fix. And this is exactly what's happening. I, I mean, yeah, I, I see your point. I just, I, I see people saying Zuckerberg needs to go to jail and stuff. And that, that's, I don't oh, think please. They said people, Hillary needs to go to jail. I mean, give well, me a yeah, break. I just, Nobody I, I needs to go I to jail. I, but I don't think any of the stories that are talking about this are making the distinction that Zuckerberg is not hands-on doing this stuff. He's overseeing it poorly. Yeah, I guess it comes down to who do you think who who do we think needs to take the bulk of the responsibility, um, and what what punishment needs to be meted out for that? Yeah, a middle manager that knew what was going on and didn't bother to tell Zuckerberg that that's a different story. That's you know, or the same if if somebody did tell Zuckerberg and he said, "Oh, I don't care," then yeah, let's let's string him up. But we're not at that point yet. Well, there's still gonna there's still a lot more to this story. So maybe by the time we talk next week, oh yeah, we will be at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's Facebook won't come out and say it, but the right now they said 87 million. There there was potentially 350 million people with that had data exposed. That doesn't mean that they all did, but it could have been up to 350 million. So if this number keeps growing, I won't be surprised. All we know, though, is that Facebook, which probably isn't losing customers or users by the millions, nor are advertisers necessarily cutting their their budgets from Facebook and Instagram. Um, we do know that all of these implementations, the overhaul of the privacy tools, the fact that they're clamping down on on APIs and and access to the data when companies do get access to APIs, the fact that all political advertisers now need to be personally and, and like manually approved 
good. by Facebook. Like all of these things cannot be bad. They are all good things. Right. Um, they should have happened two years ago. They should have happened before the election. Um, but they are not bad. And they will only probably like Samsung rebounded even better than before from the Note 7 fiasco, Facebook will probably rebound better than they were before from this. As a company, I'm saying, as a yep. company that sells ads, they will do better and they will continue growing and they will eventually eat us all. <laughs> and, and, and companies like Twitter and Google will benefit from this just by seeing it. And, oh my and God. then they'll do their own audit of, okay, what, what do we do that we need to fix that's kind of like what they did? Only imagine what's going on at, at Twitter behind the scenes right now. Oh, I think they're they're burning paper and and hiding money in vaults. I also think that Google, uh, looking at what happened with the EU regulator and the antitrust cases that it faced, mm-hmm. it's probably th- very thankful right now that it wasn't a lot worse <laughs> because Facebook <laughs> yep. is going to be burned at the stake in front of the EU whenever this comes to them. So, well, that's good. That's a good thing. I think we're going to leave it there. We're going to end on a we're going to end on a dumpster fire. Ah, and end on um, a burning at the stake. <laughs> but we will be back next week. With lots, lots more. Um, Alex, there is so much that uh, people, if, if they haven't been following you on YouTube, they, they have probably missed like 10 videos. So tell people uh, about a, a couple of the videos that you've done recently and about where people can find you on the internet. Uh, yes, yeah, so you can find me at Alex Dobie on all the things. You can also find me on uh, YouTube uh, doing Android Central stuff at youtube.com slash Android Central. So some of the recent stuff I've been doing, there will be a Huawei P20 Pro review probably by the time you uh, listen to this podcast. If not, we also have... P20, P20 Pro hands-on, we have a look at the Huawei Porsche Design Mate RS, which is a ridiculous upgraded version of uh, the uh, P20 Pro with in-screen fingerprint, 512 gigs of storage, and a $2,600 price tag. Uh, We also have a quick explainer of, well, I say quick, it's like five minutes explainer of the Galaxy S9 Exynos battery issues. Uh, We have Galaxy S9 tips and tricks. We have what is new in your uh, Note 8 Oreo update, if you're getting an update right now. And of course... Um, hot takes on the Galaxy S9 in our full review as well. So a lot to uh, to get stuck into there. And Jerry, where can people find you? Oh man, is Twitter safe yet? I mean, I'm I'm not a social media type of guy. I I only really started doing it because we have to for our job, and it's fun and it's cool, but it's so mean that I don't visit it as often as I should. Uh, it's it's at GB Hill G B H I L and that's that's where I hang out when I do hang out and you know if you say something friendly to me I'll love you for it because Twitter scares me. It's for the brave. All right. Well, as a formal request to all of you listeners, thousands of you out there, <laughs> no. I would like it. I, I would like a barrage. I would like you to log on to Twitter after you listen to this and go at GB Hill. We love you. I love you. Everybody loves you, Jerry. Oh man. I want you right, to I, I want have... you to I want you to bowl him over with your love. <laughs> and then if you yeah. feel like you can bowl 
Alex and I over with your love as well. And be um, sure to check is... out Alex's videos. Well, those are very, very good videos. Yeah, he's good. I'm sure that. everybody's watched them. My name is Daniel Bader. You can find me at Journey Dan on all the things. You can find us all at AndroidCentral.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Adios.